Thank you, Dr. Tennant, for your, not only that gracious introduction, but also regarding the deposit Christ has placed in your life and the leadership you're providing to Asbury Seminary and the Wesleyan movement around the world. I wanna not only honor you, but also Reverend Jessica Legrone and the invitation to come and serve among you today, as well as the faculty and students, as well as those who are listening or watching online. We welcome you this morning. So a number of years ago, uh, my wife and I, we, we have four children, but a number of years ago, my three sons, we have three sons and a daughter, my three sons, I was taking them duck hunting. And we were prepping for the trip, and I sent my youngest son, Stuart, to go get some hunting knives that I had stored in a certain drawer in mine and Missy's bedroom. And so Stuart takes off. I expect him to return immediately, but it, it takes him a while. In a minute, I hear kind of these sounds of just amusement. I hear him, him going, wow, whoa, cool. And I'm thinking, what in the world has he stumbled into? And he comes back into the living room and he's found my old concert tickets from my college days, BC, before I knew Christ, okay? And he's just marveling. Now he's inherited my eclectic taste for music and he's going, Dad, he's literally pulling the ticket stubs out. He's going, Kansas, wow, multiple times. Chicago, Doobie Brothers, okay? I know all this dates me, okay? And, he's, and then he does this, he goes, Kiss, Three times, Dad, really? And, and he keeps <laughs> shuffling through these. And then, then he gets real quiet. He kind of moves to the side. He's very quiet, almost reflective in a way. And I'm talking to his brothers, and then he interrupts. And he goes, he holds the concert tickets, and he goes, Dad, you know something? This explains a lot. <laughs> now, I am one of those that has very eclectic taste in music. And you know, there's some songs that will really preach. I mean, Tina Turner, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? I mean, that, that will preach. I mean, it has everything to do with it. Or what about uh, Journey, Someday Love Will Find You? I mean, that's a song of provenient grace if you redeem it. I mean, and by the way, if you're a church planter and you're planning on naming your church Journey Church, you have to do Don't Stop Believing as the closer every Sunday, right? <laughs> but I want to talk to, to, with you today about this very thread, believing. Believing God. Now, when the scripture was read beautifully just a moment ago, you're aware it has a context. And before Paul begins to say, now he, he who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we dare to ask or think or mention, okay, and that's a transliteration of the text, kind of an amplified version on you. But, but with, with that in mind, be mindful that in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, there is all of this torrential expression of what's available to us in Christ, what is available to us to believe on Christ for. It's torrential. It's a holy blitzkrieg, holy whitewater that's life-giving that's coming at you. 
Things like bless with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, redemption through the blood of Jesus, forgiveness of our sins. We have the unveiling mystery of his will been made available to us. We have the gift of the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of the knowledge of God. We have our heart eyes that have been enlightened. We have the hope of his calling. We have the riches of his grace. We have a kingdom inheritance. We have the gospel. We have the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. We have the guarantee of our inheritance. We have immeasurable power that's been made available to us. We have resurrection power. We have grace by which we have been saved. We have been delivered from being children of wrath and have become children of the living God who have been made alive in Christ. We now have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We were once far from God, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are no longer strangers and aliens, no, but now we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, members of God's household. We are being built into the dwelling place of Almighty God. We have the ability to be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the gift of being rooted and grounded in his love. We have the gift of being filled with all the fullness of God. And this is why Paul breaks out into this declaration. Now be mindful, church. <laughs> Him, he is able to do far more abundantly, exceedingly beyond all that we would ask or think according to the power that's working within us. And in light of that realization, that holy conniption happening in the heart of the Apostle Paul, he breaks out in doxology. You know what happens to him. Be glory in the church. Paul can't contain it. He breaks out in worship and praise. Glory in the church. Glory in Christ Jesus. And then he, not, he doesn't merely think about himself. He thinks about others. He thinks about the generations because may this kind of glory break out, not only in this sphere, but throughout the generations to come forever and ever. Amen. Church at Ephesus it's the only church that the Apostle Paul wrote to that he wasn't having to deal with controversy. It was a church that was postured for the movement of God, not only in them, but through them. And then the years go by. And as the years go by, it's apparent that things begin to shift in people at the church at Ephesus. Because we get a glimpse of this church once again, Revelation 2. You may confident, all of you aware, Jesus speaks specifically to this church. And, and when he does, he affirms them. In fact, you might even say he brags on them. He says to them, and I transliterate, your theology is solid. You've got good doctrine. By the way, we need to pay attention to that. Because if the Son of God is declaring that's good, then we need to be mindful that that matters. But at the same time, he also brags on them once again that when you have persons who are in offices or Ephesians 4, offices of ministry ministering among you, he bragged on them as well that, that the church tests them in alignment with Scripture. Pretty good. We need to pay attention to that. That they, in a sense, even though this is not in the text, they had the mind of the Bereans to search the scriptures for themselves to see if these things were true. But you all know where this is going. But Jesus went on to say, but I have something against you. 
You have abandoned the love that you had at first. And he says, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now let's take a pause here. Here's what I would invite us to consider. If it can happen to them, it can happen to us. If it can happen to them, it can happen to me. If it can happen to them, it can happen to all of us. And so Jesus, you know these words. He said this, if you don't, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, I, I realize that just the lampstand itself, that, that's something we could spend, we could spend a whole message. In fact, we could spend weeks just talking about all that that signifies, but we need to keep it simple and somewhat brief uh, because I've only been given two hours here to speak to you. And so, uh, let me comfort you, that was a joke, okay. But, but, but here, here's, here's the deal. We recognize that in the tabernacle of the temple, there was a lampstand, and it was lit as a part of uh, honoring Yahweh, honoring the one true sovereign God of the universe. And in light of that, we know that the lampstand represents illumination. We, re we recognize that the lampstand represents presence that comes with Jesus because the tabernacle and the temple are both pointing ultimately to the person of Jesus. So for the sake of progression of thought and logic, Let's note that the lampstand represents the illumination that comes with the presence of Jesus. It's like what Paul was praying for in Ephesians 1. I pray for a spirit of revelation and knowledge of God to rest upon the church so that when the word is open, that we're not just hearing, hearing things that are facts on paper, but no, we're experiencing epikinosis, a revelation of the living God within our lives. Now, loved ones, I, I want to propose, even though the Scripture doesn't explicitly say what happened two degrees at a time to the church at Ephesus in this shift from the book of Ephesians to Revelation 2, I want to submit that it's inferred. The details are inferred, and I want to share those with you. Here's the first one. I believe, and I'll, I'll circle back to why I believe this, I believe that the church at Ephesus, even though they had good doctrine, they became timid in the things of God. Now, now bear with me. I'll get there. You may go, man, Paul, you pulled that out of thin air, but just hold on just for a moment. I, I remember when I was relatively, um, I, I was out of seminary just a few years, and I had been a student pastor for 10 years. And I want you to know, if you're in student ministry, I honor you. And I need to say that in light of what I'm about to say. Here it is. When you do a good job as a student pastor, pretty much everybody loves you. They're just like, you know what? Awesome. But when you become the point leader of a church, when you're the pastor, senior pastor, everybody may not be crazy about you. In fact, Jesus even said that that's a good thing. He said, beware when all people speak well of you. Well, when I was first time in the senior pastor's seat, I began picking up on those things. And you, you know what? It began to damage my confidence. And the catalytic moment in my life happened when the church began reaching out to some homeless people. And there was a homeless man, a, one of the homeless persons that was attending our church was named Randy. And, and Randy, I mean, Randy was different, okay? Randy 
uh, and again, the church loved him, okay, but, and, and did a beautiful job of loving on him and manifesting the kingdom of God. But, but Randy, when you would maybe share a joke from the pulpit or something slightly humorous and people would laugh, Randy was on a three or four second delay. And when his delay button was triggered and he began to laugh, very loud, a little obnoxious, and people just had to learn to love Randy through that. But Randy also would interrupt conversations. You would be in the middle of a conversation uh, you know, somewhere before or after church, and Randy would just walk up, just interrupt, start talking, you know, no sensitivity. But the people loved Randy. Well, one morning I'm in conversation before the worship service actually begins and the worship band's warming up, and I'm standing off to the side talking to a group of people, and Randy comes up and he starts tugging at my sleeve. Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul, can I talk to you? I said, Randy, I'll be right there. Let me wrap this conversation up. If you would, let me just meet you right over there. I'll be right there, Pastor Paul. And so Randy walks across the room. I, I wrap up the conversation and I turn. And when I start moving toward Randy, these words are dropped in my heart. The least of these, the least of these. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it unto me the least of these, the least of these. And by the time I got in the corner of the storefront and I'm looking into the eyes of Randy, I have a sense that I'm not staring into the eyes of Randy, the homeless person. I have a sense that I am staring into the eyes of Jesus. And Randy says to me with perfect clarity, Pastor Paul, don't you know that the Holy Spirit resurrection power dwells in you? And God doesn't want you to be timid. He wants you to speak with love and confidence in his word as you minister to these people. That's all. And then he walked off. <laughs> and I'll remind you, God dwells in you. He has not given you, sister or brother, a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of love and power and a sound mind, sound judgment for his glory. And why do I believe this was a drift uh, at the church at Ephesus? Because Holy Spirit power always ignites love of Jesus and love of people. And somehow in the heart of these Ephesian believers who started out so beautifully, so well, two degrees at a time, a drift had happened where their love and white-hot fervency for the person of Jesus had drifted. Guard our heart. Lord, give us grace to guard our heart about being timid in the things of God. Secondly, I think that what contributed to the state of the drift at the church at Ephesus was what I would call a misplaced faith. Now, again, good doctrine, but, but stay with me. You remember the story, Martha, Jesus, Lazarus? We're all familiar with it. Here we, here we go. So Lazarus is dead, been dead four days, right? Jesus shows up. Martha says to Jesus, Jesus, and I transliterate, here we go. If you'd been here, if you had been here, we wouldn't be in this shape. And Jesus says, Martha, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. What does Martha do? Jesus, I know that someday there will be a resurrection. It's good doctrine. 
Good doctrine, spot on. A plus, you passed the cat class, Martha. Excellent. But she missed believing God in the moment. In spite of that, Jesus moved glory to God. But it, it, it provides a lens for us. Michael, could you help me with something for just a moment? And I prepared Michael for this. Uh, so would you stand? And I want you to know that I wouldn't spring something like this on my brother, but I want to illustrate something, okay? Could we just put our heads together for just a moment, okay? Now, while I do this, please do not take a picture. Do not upload this to social media and put caption this, please. Just work with me for a moment. This looks very unnatural. This is not how people greet one another. It's not how they commune together, all right? And all I'm illustrating is that for many people, particularly in North America, we have a head knowledge of God. It's cognitive. Now, I don't want to minimize the importance of cognitive thought. Wesley talked about an enlightened mind and a warmed heart, right? But if we're going to live into that, relationship looks more like this. This looks natural. This is the way we were created. Thank you, Michael. Heart to heart. And all I'm simply seeking to illustrate is that the church at Ephesus had the head knowledge correctly, but the heart, the heart of first love for Jesus, two degrees at a time, they had drifted. Loved ones, in the last several years, I've committed myself to reading more what I call missionary biography and building a missionary biography library. And I've done that for two reasons, not only out of a lens of heart for unreached people groups and the 1040 window, but what I've noticed in the legacy of the world's great missionaries and even today is that many live with an understanding of the dependence upon Jesus in reaching people with the gospel cross-culturally because they recognize they cannot in their own strength. And out of that dependence, there is a belief in the God of the now, a believing God. And one of the things that happened in the church at Ephesus, I believe, was just two degrees at a time, a misplaced faith that became cognitive, but not also rooted in the illumination of the heart. And then thirdly, there's a vulnerability that we see in the church at Ephesus, and Jesus illustrates it. I'll call it a vulnerability to missed opportunities. But let me explain. Jesus said, I have something against you that you've abandoned your first love. And then he says, repent or I'll remove your lampstand from its place. And loved ones, we're well aware that, once again, the lampstand and all that it represents, the very presence of Jesus, the illumination of Jesus, the illumination of the treasure of the person of Jesus, both in head and heart. But also, it's out of communion with Jesus that we're led by God, often with whether you call it a holy nudge or a God nod, or what Paul wrote in Romans 8, sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. And there are moments where God initiates things. He will initiate things and already has in your life in which he's guiding your trajectory for his glory. My wife and I, Missy, we, and, and Dr. Tennant referred to this just a moment ago, but my wife and I, um, we have been involved not only for decades in mobilizing for unreached people groups, particularly in the 1040 window, but we have also been involved with those that have been trafficked and orphans around the world. We, as was mentioned, we have two homes in 
honor of my late mom, Patricia B. Hammond's name for her, that provide a safe place for human trafficking victims, some as young as nine. And orphans that have no chance unless there is some type of intervention in regard to preferred future. They're being discipled, educated, have a chance to go to college or tech school. We'll be in Africa in two weeks, opening another home there for human trafficking victims. My wife serves on the board of one of the largest and most effective human trafficking ministries in North America. Now, the reason I'm sharing all that is not to toot horn. That's not my heart. Here's what I want to say to you. All of that trajectory, all of those trajectories happened to us in a 24-hour period in India a number of years ago. We were there with a church plant team, and we were asked to meet with a church leader for breakfast, and we went down and 20-something years ago, and this church leader looks at us, and he says this. He says, Pastor Paul, you know what happened in Orissa State recently? I said, oh, yes. Over, over 200 Christians were martyred. He said, you know about the missionary from Australia? I said, oh, yes, burned alive with his two sons in the car. Yes, I, I know. I grieve it deeply. We've been praying for the church. And he said, those 200 or so missions, excuse me, those 200 or so believers had children, and we have them. Will you help us? And I looked across the table and said, sure, we'll help you. And when I get back to Birmingham, I'll mobilize the church, we will help you. And so I, we go to bed that night, and... I woke up about 4.30 a.m. Some of it may have been jet lag, but I woke up about 4.30 a.m. And the Spirit came. And I began to weep for those children. Some of you know what I'm about to say, or excuse me, you identify with what I'm about to say. There, there's a time, I can't speak for everyone, but sometimes I weep in God's presence, but there are these rare times where I fill the heart of God so close. It was almost like I could just feel what God felt for these children. And I began to weep heavy. Missy woke up. She got out of bed. She came around and she sat in my lap and she began to weep. The Spirit of God fell on her. I knew why she was weeping. She knew why I was weeping and not a word had been spoken, the Spirit had spoken. And that was the birth of the trajectory of caring for orphans and trafficking victims around the world in conjunction with reaching unreached people groups. Now, loved ones, I'm not sharing that with you to say that that should be, that, you know, supposed to be exactly your experience. That's not my point. All I'm saying is the churches at Ephesus was vulnerable at this point in history that if that lampstand had been removed, that not only was the treasuring of, heart treasuring of Jesus at stake, but these divine moments where God speaks into our lives and leads us and prompts us and moves us in a way that he's also leading and prompting and moving in others. And it weaves the holy mosaic of the manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So much is at stake.
Could I take a moment to confess my sin to you? I've learned in 30-something years of ministry when a pastor says that people pay attention. When I was out of seminary in those early years, I, I did a lot of repenting because I didn't realize my, in my own heart how entitled I felt. I did a lot of repenting over and over. When we were planting our first church, at that time, I'm a United Methodist pastor, at that time, in our conference, there had been no church plant in over a decade. And when I was a seminary student here, I took a class on church planting and felt like a caged lion. I've got to get out of here and do this. God was speaking to me. And I was given that opportunity, but that opportunity came with a couple of caveats, and it went like this. Paul, we haven't planted a church in a decade in this conference, and we don't have money to pay you. And so if you do this, these are the conditions. And it would be a $7,000 cut in salary, which would be below the federal poverty line, we don't have a home to put you in, so it would be an apartment that's unfurnished. And, um, and then there were several other things that were lacking. And, but the call of God, the leading of God, seemed so clear. And so I moved into it. And six to seven months into it, it was really, really, really tough. It wasn't going the way I had hoped. And I began this silent narrative of just getting out of the ministry. And I began to talk to Missy, my wife, who's a very godly woman, and began to say to her, honey, I think we're just supposed to get out. This is not working well. I, I, this is not what I expected. It was hard. I mean, we were living on a mattress on the floor, a couple of TV trays, and it, it, was, it was just difficult. Two small children. And, and so I began talking this way, and Missy, the, my very godly wife, would say this to me. Paul, the problem's not me. I'm in. I, in fact, that you know I love you, but if I weren't married to you, I'd probably be on the mission field somewhere. And that was her way of saying, I'm all in. I'm all in. But there's a call on your life. I believe that, and you should not walk away from it. Well, the day came where for me, it felt like the last straw. I had an old Volvo DL that I bought for a bargain. I did not know that the Volvo had been submerged underwater before I bought it. And that car would die. I mean, just regularly. In fact, I nicknamed that car Lazarus, all right? <laughs> and so, so we get a phone call from friends from Kentucky who were gonna, going to come to Alabama to visit, to visit us in Huntsville. So, so they start heading down, but we can't host them in our unfurnished apartment with two TV trays and a mattress. So we decide we will meet you at our parents' home place in Gunnersville, Alabama, about 45 minutes away. And so I put Missy in Lazarus, the two boys in the back seat, and we take off toward Gunnersville. But as I'm leaving the city of Huntsville, Lazarus dies. And when Lazarus dies and I pull over, in my heart, I'm going, that's it. And I look at Missy and I say, sweetheart, that's it, we're done. We get to Gunnersville. I'll start making arrangements. I'll go to law school or something, anything but this. And she looked at me and she goes, okay. How many of you know there is a false discernment of the Holy Spirit that also 
is the opposite of true discernment of the Holy Spirit. In that moment, I felt a weight come off. I was confident that I was hearing God. And I, uh, again, I had to go uh, get on the phone, borrow a phone, rent a car, call a tow truck, make arrangements uh, for a taxi. And so I go up to a house, borrow a phone, do that, walk back down to Governor's Drive, Main Drive there in Huntsville. The tow truck pulls up. He gets out. Hi, Paul. He knows me by name. Hooks Lazarus up, knows where to take Lazarus. And then he says, what are you guys waiting around here for? I said, well, I called the taxi company and they haven't showed up yet. I said, I called them before you. He says, that's strange. You're right here on Governor's Drive. How could they miss you? He took his cell phone and he called Alabama Cab. He said, what do you mean you can't find him? He's standing right here on Governor's Drive. I'm standing here with him. And then he hung up and he looked at me and said, I heard a guy radio in and he says, I know where he is. I'll be right there. He finished that sentence. The taxi pulled up. I got in the front seat, Missy and the boys got in the back, and we took a 20-minute ride to Huntsville Airport. Silence. Other than the purr of the taxi, I suppose you could hear a pin drop. And the taxi driver finally breaks the silence, and he says this. So tell me, what do you do for a living, taking his eyes off the road? And I thought, what can I say to kill any potential of conversation? And so I muttered something that I felt he would not understand. I muttered, I'm a church planter, thinking it would kill the conversation. Now, now he really takes his eyes off the road, and he looks at me, and he says, that's amazing. I'm a graduate of New Orleans Baptist Seminary. I was in ministry for a number of years. Things got really, really tough. And I got out, and it was the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. Now, you would think that would get through to me. I'm watching the meter. I've got $11 in my pocket, the meter and no credit card. The meter is at $11.95. And I say, sir, I only... And I don't even get the sentence out. And he reaches up and he goes, pop, and turns the meter off. Now, I don't have a clearly worked out theology of angels. I don't even want to go there right now. All I know is that that taxi driver was a messenger for me that day. Would you let me be your taxi driver for just a moment? Fight for your heart. Fight not to become timid in the things of God. Fight not to allow your faith to be misdirected. Fight that you do not succumb to the vulnerability of letting your first love of Jesus, heart and mind, to grow cold. Fight for your heart. Fight for your heart in the scriptures. Fight for your heart in prayer. Fight for your heart in worship. Fight for your heart by pulling away at times to renew so that you have the capacity to be impactful to the culture around you. Fight for your heart, because if it can happen to them, it can happen to you. If it can happen to them, it can happen to me. If it can happen to them, it can happen to us. Fight for your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.